0: We're going to be in John chapter 19 verses 23 through 42. Do you find that when you read the Bible that there are so many angles to it that you say, "Wow, I didn't see that the first time through." And Easter rolls around every year, right? And you could say, well, there's just so many chapters in the Bible that talk about the resurrection story, the Easter story. I mean, it it could get kind of boring and old just to read the same thing over and over again. But there are so many facets and so many angles to the scriptures you go through and just think and meditate on them. And, of course, then you have four Gospels, and each one of them presents it with a slightly different viewpoint, and John presents uh, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Christ for all of humanity, for the whole world. And of course, we know John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So John's gospel appeals to all people groups throughout the world. And so, as we come to chapter nineteen today, verses twenty three through the end of the chapter uh, forty two, we're going to concentrate. Not necessarily on the technical side of the story about the crucifixion, but we're going to look at a different angle here today. That there are five fulfilled prophecies. Now, years ago, there was a professor of um, physics, I think it was, or chemistry at Bob Jones University. His name was Dr. George Molfinger. And uh, he was a young student at Syracuse University. And he contracted an illness, was in the hospital. And uh, he just happened to be uh, in a shared room with this lunatic Christian who actually believed that Jesus was real. And, of course, he was this scientist that just was, you know, saying, okay, there's all these reasons why you can dismiss Jesus. But nonetheless, he felt compelled to have a conversation with his hospital roommate. And his hospital roommate started sharing with him, that one of the reasons why he believed in the person of Jesus Christ, his, his existence, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, was because of fulfilled prophecy. Doctor Mulfinger's uh, response to that was, "Well, anybody could make those up, make up a fulfillment of that." And so the Christians lay there for a couple of moments and thought to himself, "Well," and then he said out loud to Doctor Mulfinger, "He says there are a couple that he had no control over." Number one, you can't control where you're born. And number two, you can't control what happens to you after you die. But yet the gospel accounts record uh, that Jesus Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem, and he was, and the gospel accounts record um, what was prophesied about what would happen to the body of Jesus after he had died in the, in the form of uh, torture and death that he would experience. And so as Jesus is nailed to the cross, you would think that as a man, he would be helpless. There's no way in the world that he would have any power to bring about or arrange a fulfillment of the prophecies. And especially after he dies. I mean... If he paid people to, to do that and he's dead, they're under no obligation to do what he wanted them to do. Take the money and run, right? He's not going to track you down. So there, there would be no power on a human level to bring about the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, when I say fulfillment of a prophecy, I'm talking about something that was said in the Old Testament that comes true in the New Testament. Here's how I explain to someone who's not even a Christian what the Bible is. I said, well, the Bible's got two different parts to it. They are the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then I say this, the Old Testament says, God created man and rebelled against him. And God said, I'm going to send somebody to fix this problem. And so all through the Old Testament, God tells us about this special person that he's going to send. And the New Testament says, here he is and how he fixes it. And so, today, as we go through our story of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, uh, once again, our, our proposition is that we can believe the evangelist record here. Let's see, Josiah, what happened to the clicker? There it is, it's just hiding on me. All right. Uh, we can believe the evangelist record concerning the arrest, trial, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is why John ends up writing his gospel. So you're in chapter 19. Go over to verse, uh, chapter 20 and look at verse 31 with me. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So is that hospital mate that was a Christian of uh, Dr. Mulfinger shared the gospel with him. Dr. Mulfinger became a Christian and uh, then he used his abilities in, sil- in science to uh, educate Christians in science but from a biblical perspective knowing that Jesus was his savior. Now as we look here today the purpose of this story is recorded so that you can believe and that in believing you will have life in the name and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you remember the uh, Reformation, uh, the famous character that started the Reformation, Martin Luther? Um, As he was going through this passage, he said, the whole point of these stories is to see Jesus. If you're reading the Bible and you don't know that it's about Jesus, well, you might gain some knowledge But you're going to miss the point. The message is about this person of Jesus. And um, so you might become learned uh, by reading, studying the scriptures. This is what he said. Um, All of this would do me no good whatsoever, for if I do not know and do not find the Christ, neither do I find salvation in life eternal. In fact, I actually find bitter death. For our good God has decreed that no other name is given among men whereby we may be saved except through the name of Jesus. And so his point was, hey, these scriptures are written so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, as Jesus is dying on the cross, he is giving careful attention to, the prophecies of the old testament which remain unfulfilled as he's dying on the cross he's giving detail and attention to scripture now most of us would be concentrating on how much pain we're in Uh, we would be concentrating on our death we might be emotionally angry or upset or despondent or discouraged feeling like we're a victim but this was not our lord He was making sure that through the whole process that he is still sovereign God and controlling what was written in the Old Testament to make sure it comes true even on the cross. So in John chapter 19, let's go back to verse uh, 24. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So these four Roman soldiers uh, who have nailed Jesus to the cross, part of the most powerful army in the world, standing there at the cross of this Little humble Galilean man who is now dying, they begin to do what soldiers do. They begin gambling, casting lots. Uh, they're, they're humiliating. in the last moment of this victim's life, uh, this is what they do for every person, is they gamble, they take away their sandals and their clothes, and uh, this is a, the last act of humiliation that these soldiers can do. But yet Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is showing us that, yes, even what seems to be um, an obscure detail, a a random act of mankind, is yet part of God's plan. Now, part of the reason that the inner tunic of Jesus, why they don't want to rip it into, into several pieces, is because just a few days before, Mary had anointed him with spikenard and that was worth a year's of wages. And so they're like, let's not cut that one up. Whoever rolls the dice or casts lots for this one, you're the big winner, right? And so all of that was part of God's plan to stop those men from ripping up that woven garment. And so let's look now at this. So this comes to us from Psalm chapter 22. So go back to your Old Testament. You want to keep your book here, keep a ribbon here. In John chapter 19. And then we're going to go back to the Old Testament book of Psalm. Chapter 22. And this particular song that was written by David. Has many fulfillments in the New Testament. This is about the Messiah. And the fact that Jesus is going to be a suffering Savior. But we come down to the 18th verse. Now remember, this is a song that was sung in the Jewish worship calendar. And and this is what David wrote the music. These are the lyrics to a song. And so in verse 18, They part my garments among them, they cast lots upon my vesture. And so this was written, David lived uh, a thousand years before Christ. And here's this prophecy that remains for a thousand years. And then Jesus lives a thousand years later, and as he's dying, he brings fulfillment upon this. And so, yeah, the, the gambling seems to be something that maybe Roman soldiers do all the time, but yet this is the divine plan of God. So, David was beset in the song by uh, physical distress and mockery by his opponents. And so he uses this language then to symbolize the suffering of the Messiah, of his descendant. And so the the executioner would divide the victim's clothing to portray the depth of his trouble, but they didn't have crucifixion back in David's day. This was something the Romans did. So here's what's more remarkable about this. As God breathed out the words to David, and David faithfully wrote them down, Maybe David didn't understand what form of death this was. But yet it was language that could apply to his suffering, but yet also be fulfilled in the sufferings of Jesus, the descendant, the son of David. And so David would have no idea about that form of execution that he had never seen. But it was just the type of the suffering that Jesus would have. And so there in verse 18, they part my garments among them, and they cast lots upon my vesture. So this big idea is that we can believe because here, even in the casting of lots, which, you know, it just seems random, right? It, it, have you ever played a board game like that? And, you know, you're, maybe it's Sorry or maybe it's Settlers of Catan, or maybe it's Risk, or some other game, you know, maybe it's Farkle, you know, and you're hoping for a certain number, and it seems so random that you get that number. Well, there was nothing random about this. This was an act of God. Now, the next thing that we see in fulfillment here, let's go back to John chapter 19, is the fulfillment of the giving of vinegar, the giving of vinegar. So, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, ooh, now this is beautiful. Has Jesus lost situational awareness? You heard about the the two airplanes that almost collided uh, about a month ago. And uh, the one pilot that works for a major airline, um, he just said, look, I lost situational awareness. I, I didn't know what was going on around me. And so if there had been an accident, it would have been my fault. Well, Jesus did not lose situational awareness through the crucifixion, through his suffering. Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, Jesus exactly knew where he was every moment, every hour, every minute when he's on that cross. He knows when his life will come to an end. And so he knows when these things were accomplished, that the scripture, now notice this, might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. It's Jesus is there suffering on the cross, and he says, there's one more prophecy that needs to remain here. I thirst. Now, what was it Jesus taught during his lifetime? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So yes, there's a, a physical suffering of thirst. His mouth is parched but he's also, I believe, spiritually thirsting to bring his work of atonement to completion. Jesus didn't forget to finish the job. He knows what he's doing. And so this idea here that all things were accomplished, it's the idea of fulfilling one's task. Are you the kind of person that you, you get easily distracted and you forget what task you were doing. And then you come back to it a few minutes later and you're like, oh, I thought I did that. And then just in that thought, you get a little distracted and you know it's, it's hard to finish a job. Well, Jesus is finishing the job for you. And so fulfilling one's religious obligation, um, this is the idea that Jesus is paying the price in full. There's one Greek word behind this. Uh, It comes from this root uh, word of uh, teleos, which means to bring to completion. In another form of that word, they would stamp it on receipts, and it meant paid in full. So the work of Jesus Christ was full payment, for your sin and my sin and he's taking care of every detail he's bringing it all to completion he's what, done what we call the finished work of Jesus when you put your trust in Jesus Christ it's not up to you in, in your weak faith whether you, you continue staying saved or not because Jesus finished the work on the cross because there are days when our faith falters, does it not? Oh, I can't believe that I sinned that sin. I must not be saved. Well, as one uh, writer put it this way, to have trusted in yourself um, is an act of sin. Okay, to, to be surprised is really just showing that you trusted in yourself. Trust in the finished work of Jesus because he brought the payment of sin to a conclusion. He paid all of it for you. And so, yes, Jesus is thirsting uh, physically and spiritually. He's suffering the torment, literally, of hell. Hell is being separated from his Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think that was the hardest part of the cross for Jesus. Never in eternity had he ever been separated from his Father. Until it came to pain for our sin in full. The price is all paid. And so, he's still sovereignly in charge of the situation. And here he bows his head, and he cries out, It is finished. That's the idea, once again, accomplished or finished. He has done it. He's brought this to a conclusion. And so Jesus Christ has paid for your sin, there's nothing that you can do to add to it. You see, this is where so many of what so-called Christian religions go wrong. Roman Catholicism goes wrong. It says you have to, to keep the seven sacraments. Says you have to go through the church for salvation. You have to uh, go through confession and have a holy unction at the end of your life, last rites. You have to go through marriage. You have to to go through uh, works of service and all of these things. And so the gospel according to Rome is, yeah, go ahead and ask Jesus to be your savior, but you're not saved unless you keep up all of the good works and perform all the religious deeds. The Mormons have just a wrong gospel just from the get-go. Their gospel is, For by grace are you saved after all you have done. That's not the definition of grace. The Bible's definition of grace is, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And so all of these different religions, they they keep you subjugated to their religious system. Because they don't have trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They don't trust the paid and full work of Jesus. So this is what Jesus did for you. He paid for your eternal salvation. All right, now, as we come to this next point, once you're dead, can you really control what happens to you? So here we move to a new level of the divine providence of fulfilling of scripture in the death of Jesus. Let's go down to verse 36. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Of bone of him shall not be broken. So if you read John chapter 19, the gospel account goes like this. It is the day before, just a few hours before Passover, a high holy day Sabbath. And they cannot have any dead bodies displayed on a cross. This all has to be finished before the Sabbath begins because they can't defile the the Sabbath day through dead bodies on a cross. So what they do is they're they're going to go to these three uh, men, Jesus in the middle and the two thieves on either side, and they're going to make sure that they're dead before the Sabbath comes so that they won't desecrate the Sabbath. And so they come to the first, and he's still suffering. So they break his legs. Well, if you've not heard this before, so as the the feet are crossed and nailed together and slightly bent, you would have to push off that nail and push up to get any air in your lungs. And if your legs are broken, then you can't push off anymore. And you'll suffocate to death. What a horrible way, after all of the other forms of torture, to go. So they came to the second, did the same thing. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. There was the divine protection of the body of Jesus. You see, at this point, his disciples have fled. Only John is bold enough to be there at the cross. So these religious leaders, they may have taken the body of Jesus and gone to the valley of Kidron and thrown his body into the burning heaps of Kidron. They could have done anything they wanted with the body of Jesus. They they could have broken his legs to to kill him faster. But, so that the scripture was fulfilled, uh, we go back uh, to Psalm 34, verse 20, the the keeping of his bones. Uh, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Isn't it amazing how Jesus, as a son of David, used David to write so many prophetic utterances about the Messiah. Now, as you also uh, look at this, this is fulfillment of even the Passover lamb type. So Jesus is the antitype of the type of the Passover lamb. So a Jewish home on Passover had to take a perfect lamb and slay it. But they were not to break its bones And so Jesus Christ is the human Lamb of God that was slain for our sins so that the wrath of God could pass over us when we trust in Him and apply His blood to our life. That's Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Um, Even here we we see that the the divine protection of the Lord's bones, this miracle, um, is still very evident. Alright, so they were given no opportunity, these religious leaders that hated him, to touch his body. And so the keeping of his bones. Alright, now let's look here at verses 31 through 37. I'm sorry, let's keep on reading. In verse 37, uh, the piercing of his side. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they have Pierced. So the Apostle John in his gospel um, has mentioned the outflow of the blood and the water uh, to really show that Jesus Christ was unquestionably dead. Do you know how some people want to explain the resurrection of Jesus? Was through this, that he never really died. He just fainted. All right? He just passed out from the agony of pain. Um, well, when you have a spear rammed through your, your lungs and your heart, you're not going to survive that. Nor are any other forms of crucifixion that, that Jesus Christ experienced. And so this is providing the certainty of his death. Jesus was given, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a substitution where God the Father made Jesus Christ to become sin for us, to bear our sin on that cross. So Jesus Christ becomes that substitute that we then might become the righteousness of God in him. So what a wonderful exchange. He identifies as us so we can identify as him. That's so beautiful. But Jesus was pierced. He really did die in our place to give us life. The just one died for the unjust so that those that are unjust to put their faith in Jesus can become just. The unrighteous can become righteous in Jesus, the piercing of his body. This is a remarkable fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Zechariah chapter 12 and and verse 10. And I will pour out my spirit upon the house of David Upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, and one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, John is not saying that they will look upon him as the coming Messiah at this point. John is saying they're looking upon Jesus as the one that they pierced. The Jewish people killed their Messiah. The second half of that verse will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. They'll see him coming, and then they'll realize what they've done as a nation, and they'll weep and they'll mourn. But Jesus Christ is that anti-type of that Passover lamb, and in every way he suffered. He was pierced and uh, he died for us. And so, as the Apostle John is there at Calvary looking upon the work that God is doing, he sees the pierced hands and feet of Jesus. And he realizes this, even in his death, is a fulfillment of prophecy. They pierced my side. And so sometimes we sing a song, The Five Bleeding Wounds of Jesus, His hands and His feet and His side, that they avail for me. And so here is just another case of the supernatural working of God when Jesus has has already died. That He's still in control of all this, the piercing of His side. Then the closing one is the burying of his body. Uh, Look with me at verse 41. John chapter 19, verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. This comes to us from Isaiah chapter 53, In verse 9. So if you want to go back to Isaiah 53 and verse 9. I'll read it to you. And he said. And he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence. Neither was there any deceit. In his mouth. Now just as a side note. As you read the account. in, In John chapter 19. There are two men. Who at this point. Go to Pilate. Who's the Roman governor and say to Pilate, we would like to secure possession of the body of Jesus. So once again, God is not allowing his Holy One to suffer corruption. Another fulfillment in Psalm 22. But here, you need to know who these two men are. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were two members of the Sanhedrin that did not go along up rest of Jesus, the sham trial of Jesus, the false accusations or charges against Jesus. And these two men, even though they did not come out publicly and say, we are followers of Jesus the Messiah, God used them at this exact moment to fulfill the scripture about how Jesus would be buried. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man. And so he had a new tomb cut out. No bones that ever desecrated that tomb. There's no family members that ever been put in there. This is a fresh and a brand new grave. Now several years ago, uh, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to Israel. We were in Jerusalem. And we went to a place that we call uh, Gordon's Calvary. Uh, which looks like the rock formation is the place of a skull. It looks like a human skull. And guess what you find nearby? You find a garden. You find a tomb. And as you read the gospel accounts, the way that the tomb is laid out, it, mit- it meets the gospel conditions. How the angels would appear, on what side the body of Jesus would have been laying Uh, The track in the stone, it's all there. And so it's very likely that very tomb of Jesus. But yet these two men, they come, and through the studying of scriptures, they knew that Christ would die. They knew that here they could be used of God to fulfill prophecy. And so I believe that this tomb was made just for the Messiah. Now, if that wasn't Joseph's intention, it sure was God the Father's intention to fulfill prophecy. And so let's not necessarily criticize Joseph and Nicodemus for being hidden disciples, because God did use them to accomplish his purposes. And you know, here's something else that's very interesting. These men are part of the Sanhedrin. Do you know why they rushed the trial through? Do you remember why they wouldn't enter into Pilate's palace? Because they didn't want to defile themselves because the Passover was coming. Do you know what happens when Joseph and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus down from the cross and touch a dead body? They made themselves, according to the Jewish religion, ceremonially unclean. They could not participate in the Passover. But you know. I don't think that bothered them a bit. Because they had become clean. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Through his shed blood. They had already asked the Lamb of God. To be their savior. To make them clean. And so I find this very interesting. That these two. Um, very devout. Devout. Uh, Men would defile themselves to bury the body of Jesus. But you know, we need that cleansing in our lives, don't we? For all have sinned. How many have sinned? All. What is sin? It's missing the mark. It's going astray. Sin can be even a thought sin can be forgetting to do something that God has said to do sin can definitely be doing something that God said not to do so just say that in our life in one day we think one bad thought we forget to do one good thing and we commit one wrong deed three sins a day round it thousand sins in a year You live to be 70. You've only committed 70 million sins or two. Right? But yet Jesus Christ can cleanse all sin if you will put your trust in him. The Lamb of God has given his life for the sins of the world. His work on earth was finished and he rested on the Sabbath day as he makes us his new creation. And so, as we look at what the gospel writers have put down for us, they're concerned to emphasize this very specific detail at the crucifixion. Like other details, was planned for and prophesied by God. Neither was this or any other aspect of the death of Jesus Christ accidental. God knew what he was doing in securing your salvation. All of these prophecies lead us to the fact that we can trust the gospel accounts. We can believe the evangelist record concerning the arrest, the trial, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, we, like Jesus, encourage you to do so. Jesus, during his lifetime, said, Come unto me, all ye that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Are you sin-tired? Will you humble yourself and admit that you have sinned? Jesus will give you rest for your sin-weary soul. He will cleanse you and forgive you a relationship with him that will last forever. He'll give you a standing that you do not deserve, one of being perfectly righteous because he died as your substitute to give you his standing. And even as he's suffering on the cross, going through the agony of crucifixion, he's fully aware of the work that he's doing for you and for me. So what more evidence do you need? I don't know that you need intellectual evidence as much as you need humility. God will give grace to the humble, but he will resist the proud. So humble yourself today under the mighty hand of God. He will forgive you because he loves you.